see, 35 divided by the square root of pi. Hmm, that didn't work. Shoot. What's the 11-digit prime number that I need for the variable in the cell's projection? Mark, what what in the world are you doing? Listen, we've got a cool guest coming on the show. He's a private equity guy who is an expert in financial modeling. I want to impress him. I'm writing some algorithms with the big data that I've collected in a data warehouse that I built using Python. And I'm using IBM's Watson's artificial intelligence to build an artificial neural network for my newest financial model for a small food truck operation. But I need to do some more data mining for my predictive analytics. You got it? Okay, Mark, Mark, just stop it. Just stop it now. You've got to start the show. Yes, he wants me to shut up and do a reboot. Bruce, are you a financial modeler? Well, yes, Mark. I do think I am. Again, we're talking financial modeling, not modeling, idiot. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. All right. Well, although, get- you, although, you, let me interrupt. You do have that GQ look. Well, yeah, yeah. I got my I got my nice Zoom shirt on today. Yeah, I, I would I would say that. You know, I think by the by the definition of financial modeler, I think anybody who's trying to make sense of financial data is going to be a financial modeler. Where did you learn financial modeling? Oh, you pause. You you walk right. Okay, good. I'm glad you did that. Because in my opinion, now I don't know what's taught in schools today, but I think financial modeling, the best way to learn it is just doing it and getting started uh, because a lot of it, what you might be exposed to in school is very, very generic, generic, read my lips, generic. But the best modeling is as much art as it is technical science. Do you agree? Totally agree. And um, and was the reason for my pause was that, I you know, I don't think, I think you can learn some best practices and you can learn some, you know, get some templates and at least find a starting point and pieces to to go to when needed. But at the end, you you have to understand the story. That's it's you know it's not it's not all about the numbers. It's you know, it's pulling the story together. The story can be represented in a numeric way, in a financial way, and then tying the story together so it makes sense to the audience. You're talking about best practices. Do you want to know what my definition of financial modeling best practices are? I do. I do. Are you serious? You really want to know? Oh, I do. There's there's my way and there's the wrong way. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't oh. help that. Couldn't help it. Well, what we are talking to... Peter Lynch, and he is the creator of A Simple Model. I don't want to say too much, but this guy has, in my opinion, he has an it factor. And I'm a fan. I hope I'm allowed to call him a friend because if Peter to email me right now and say, Mark, would you do something? Can you? I would say, yes, yes. So this guy uh, created A Simple Model. And we're going to talk about financial modeling. We're going to talk a little bit about private equity. We're going to talk about actually learning, uh, learning uh, financial modeling, which again, he's got a great platform for that. So I'm, I'm thrilled to talk to the Peter Lynch. Are you? I am. I am. That's a, a fine introduction. I was, you know, when you first said Peter Lynch, it's like, oh, but, but, cool. But, but stop. Love his books. Love- Stop nope. it. Stop it there. Because <laughs> you, you're you're kind of stealing my thunder. Okay. So go ahead and do your push the button stuff, this this podcast magic on the audio board for this interview. Do whatever it is that you say or do, Bruce. All right. So Mark, let's uh let's quit messing around and go ahead and listen to the interview. I'm not oh, messing Peter. around. I'm not messing around. Peter, this is, I'm, I'm telling you, Peter, this is an honor. Uh, the fact that you're the 
fund manager for Fidelity, uh, Magellan, the Magellan Fund, rather, at Fidelity. I'm just, Peter Lunch, oh my gosh, you're famous. We're glad to have you on the show, Peter. I was, I was happy to make a little time in between writing all those books, so... No, no. Do you get that a lot, Peter Lunch? Do do you? You know, I'll tell you, it was, um, I do. And starting out, it was really quite comical because I would get a callback for most interviews, mostly because people just wanted to know if I was the son of the great Peter Lynch. And it would frequently be met with a dial tone when they realized I was not, you know, it was just kind of a funny way to, uh, but it it helped. It, It certainly opened doors. No question. On the other hand, we've got millennials listening. They're saying, who? Peter who? Because 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 I right. didn't, didn't he retire from the Magellan Fund back in the late, gosh, late eighties or early nineties? I mean he he's, he did yeah. I mean he did extraordinarily well, and then you know kind of kept to his own affairs. Well, we not, so not a bad track. So we have the real the real Peter Lynch. T- tell yeah, us even though he's the other Peter Lynch. <laughs> so so in the verse and I talked a little bit about you. Uh, I love your private equity background and just your educational upbringing. Can you just walk through a little bit how you got started in your career? Certainly. Absolutely. So um, uh, my my father was actually a lifetime investor and he started giving me uh, Seth Klarman's letters when I was a teenager and had nothing to do with it. I didn't know, I could barely understand what they meant, but he was giving them to me. And so I thought I should keep reading them and um, very insightful pulls from a lot of literary references. So really quite interesting, but really didn't know what to make of it at the time, but that was probably always in the background. And then um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So everyone has gone out and started their own business. And so when I went to school on my campus, uh, University of Pennsylvania, everyone only talked about investment banking or private equity. Um, And so that's probably actually what convinced me to go work for a large institution. Initially, my two older brothers were kind of like, you know, you sell out. (laughs) <laughs> they they thought it was just odd to go work for a big institution. Why not carve your own path? Um, so I went to work for uh, J.P. Morgan, and I had this really strong desire to go abroad because I had an internship with Luther King Capital Management, and they had made a phase A investment uh, in an entity down in Argentina. And I just thought, you know, young, impressionable kid who knew nothing. I was like, that's cool. And so I uh, I started cold calling anyone who had anything to do with anyone in South, like with any kind of financial institution in Chile or Argentina were the two places I wanted to go. And after a lot of awkward phone calls, um, landed a final round interview with JP Morgan down there. And so that took me down to Santiago, Chile. And I spent about nine months there and then went over to Argentina. And I cannot tell you how wildly different those two economies are. Um, it was, it was very interesting to see reading the wall street journal, of the equivalent in Argentina, it just, it, you know, they would have really high inflation and come out with a set interest rate and just these policies that made no sense creating kind of backwards economic policies from anything that I ever understood under, under Kirchner and, um, really interesting, really enjoyed it. Uh, but then left and had an offer from a hedge fund that had just opened an office in Argentina. And, uh, what was amazing is from the time they made me the offer to the time that I was set to start, the hedge fund disappeared. The uh, Great Recession had set in and they were over levered and uh, not on the right side of the CDS trade, I'll say. And so that is what took me to New York. Um, I actually reached out to all of the people that I had interviewed with when I was on campus in Philadelphia. And one group was trying to grow a LATAM M&A effort in the food and agribusiness space, which was, you know, it was amazing because that group was exceptionally busy at a time that M&A was collapsing around the world. And so I really had kind of a one-way ticket. I had a two-week window to start the job. I unfortunately used it to have a little fun instead of trying to find an apartment. So I was sleeping on my friend's floor uh, for the first week of my job because I didn't realize how difficult it was to find an apartment in New York City. And so I would wake up on kind of this like folded up blanket with my suit laying out next to me, put it on, get to work. And finally, one of the MDs realized that um, I was, you know, not in my own spot and gave me two days to go find an apartment. Um, and so that, that was really interesting. That's probably where I learned the most about financial modeling. I had two MDs that were incredible. And I told one of them that I wanted to be excellent at this particular skill set, And he told me that I should build everything from scratch to not use any of their templates, that he would give me a little extra time. Um, 
Great, great advice. Great it advice. It really was. I mean, it was amazing. And he gave me extra time to do it. I, I think eventually it worked to his favor also because I, I got staffed on the increasingly complex projects. And I increasingly was the guy who got to go and meet with the CFO or the management team to understand why the information coming out of the system wasn't, wasn't you know, matching up. Uh, and so that, that was just really incredible. The other managing director that I was supporting could spot errors in a model custom or otherwise before it hit the table. I mean, I would walk over and show him something and he didn't always know where the error was. Most of the time he did, but just at a quick glance, he was like, something's wrong, go fix it. And between the two of them, it was, it was a really cool education. Um, the former, he was previously at JP Morgan, was how, which has helped me make the transition to Rabobank at a time when I remember um, very well walking out. Uh, we were at just north of Grand Central Station and we were there. You're there every hour of the day. And you'd step out in the AM. And I remember the crunching from all the blackberries that had been spiked as people were being let go. And it was just kind of a reminder to hold on to that job. <laughs> because, um, you, you know, we were across the street from Lehman. Uh, Bear Stearns was nearby. JP Morgan was across the street. And you just watched people leave in, in mass exodus on a frequent basis. You've already, so, answered, you've already answered, Peter, one of my next questions. Private equity there's a front stage, there's a backstage. And I know that language may not be used uh, in, 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 in that industry, but when you hear those terms, front stage, backstage, on field, off field, what is your favorite part? But I think you've already answered the question. I, I, I really like being involved. Um, and so my, my first experience in private equity was actually an opportunity to work with my father. Um, he started a private equity practice uh, in the 80s in 1989, actually, which was a terrific time to be doing that. And um, he, they were always extremely hands-on and long-term. Um, he and his partner, basically, their philosophy was that so long as you're growing and compounding, there's really no reason to exit unless you receive a unsolicited silly offer that is sufficiently compelling or your management team is tired because you shouldn't put the asset back at risk by replacing the management team. And so those would be kind of their two reasons for exiting. And otherwise, it really was long-term growth. And while I was there, I probably anytime there was a void, his, his partner, I'll go back a step, his partner liked to say that we were a private equity firm until we closed the transaction. And then we were as much a human resources firm as we were a private equity group. And so if there was a void, someone missing in marketing, someone missing in accounting, uh, CFO role, I would get plugged into that remotely. You know, So I got to fill all these various roles and it worked because the way they thought about private equity was that you maintained a certain size portfolio. So they always wanted a portfolio of six to eight companies. And once they achieved that scale, they would switch into add-ons. And once they sold something, they would replace that platform. But otherwise, it always maintained that scale. And that allowed you to really manage with the effort that we had. I think one of the challenging things in private equity is when you have success in a certain niche, there's this immediate desire to go raise the larger fund and push yourself out of that niche. And I think if you can maintain, you know, the knowledge base that you build compounds the exact same way your investments do, your network does, and it all remains relevant to the commoditized process of going from A to B, whatever your niche is in private equity, maintaining it is difficult because the management fees scale and that is often difficult to resist. But, um, before, before we talk about a simple model, Peter, let's talk about financial modeling just in general. Sure. On Quora, and you see, you can't answer all these questions, but there's maybe like, am I exaggerating thousands of questions about how do you get started in financial modeling? Where's the best training? Constant. It's a, uh, yeah. For you, was financial modeling about maybe a baptism by fire, just starting it? Is that one of the best ways? Or do you think, hey, I need some structured learning first, then I go start my modeling? What's the best way to get started? And I have a two-part question if I'm allowed. Certainly. I think I know what your answer is going to be. So I also want to know, why is this not taught in schools? Sure, sure. So um, I think everyone tries to provide a foundation initially. And for me, um, I went to a boot camp and I remember it was a, a two or three day boot camp a long time ago. I don't quite recall. And they were teaching you how to build this LBO model with like seven tranches of debt and a waterfall. Like, I mean, it was, it was wild. And I was still new to all of it and new to Excel. And I left confused. 
and I had, you know, all of these materials and really couldn't make sense of it. And my first thought was, it's been so difficult for me to get into this. There must be a different way to teach it. And so I went through all of the manuals uh, where I was currently working and just condensed it as much as I could. And I kept iterating it over and over and over again. And I, I stayed late at night working on this and finally wrote a manual for a three cent model that I thought, this, these are all the relationships. If you understand these relationships, everything else, you're just adding on arithmetic. And it's not that difficult. Everything else is another dead schedule. It's kind of something you've seen before. And so it's, it's more detail, but I don't view it as more complex. And so for me, if you can understand how to pull a schedule out of a model and then plug a different one in, you understand those relationships. If you know that forwards and backwards, the rest is really comfortable. And I think the problem is you normally either get taught a template, which doesn't help understand. It doesn't help, uh, doesn't kind of facilitate an understanding of those relationships. Or you get taught something that's entirely too complex because they're saying, okay, we got this quick window to teach someone this, and then they have to be functional on the job. So we're going to give them everything. And I think both of those approaches are a mistake. I really think it should be a reference that you can pull from all the time. I am currently a simple model's best customer because I pull all my own templates every time I'm, I'm building something and I build models by modular design. So I don't want to recreate the same preferred schedule, the same waterfall, any of those things. I want to be able to incorporate them into a larger workbook and then tweak them. And, and that's, that's sort of how I think about it. Why it's not taught in schools, it's interesting. So we now allow professors um, to upload their entire class for free to the platform for all of the content that will get you a job. And that gives them access to the quizzes, the exams, and the professors can track their progress. And it's been interesting because... I speak with a lot of uh, adjunct professors and they are, um, you know, they're CFO somewhere or they have some other background and they really enjoy it. They like it. And then I'll speak with professors uh, and this is less frequent, but their complaint is it's not academic. The, the theory isn't there. You're, you're very mechanical and, you know, it, it, I will argue that with them that you're, if you're trying to explain something ab abstract, a mechanical way of understanding it is helpful. I, I think like a visual way of understanding it is helpful. I would say so, yours, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yours no, is real world. <laughs> I mean, this is right. tested and, but, from the field. <laughs> so, I mean, their counter is we're teaching people how to learn and then the job should teach them, you know, what's practical, why they're getting paid their salary. And I, I disagree with that a little bit um, or a lot. Um, yeah, I, I think there should be this connection between vocation and education. And that's really what a simple model is all about. Uh, the other thing that I've been really working hard on is I, um, I couldn't afford the boot camp when I went. I, I had to um, ask my parents and I really hated having to do that. And so I always wanted to make the content you need to get your first job. If you're willing to spend the time on it, money would never be the obstacle, right? You, you could learn it. And so that's always been a huge objective at a simple model. It's difficult to scale. So what we've done recently in the last, it's probably taken us eight months to create this. We now have the ability for a corporation to log in and they can post a job. And um, on top of that, they can upload about 30 employees at a time and train them and watch their progress the same way that the professors do. And for me, the way I think about it is if, it, if the skill set is useful to the corporation day one, when that individual shows up, then the corporate, you can transfer the burden of the cost of education over to the corporation. And it's still a benefit to both parties, except one can really afford it and benefits from it and actually has a real candidate in place versus on the student side. What I don't like is you can really prey on the anxiety of students who really need a job really badly, like spend $3,000 because you're going to get a job where you get paid $150,000 a year. So what's it matter? But not all of them get the job. That funnel's pretty tight. And uh, so that, that kind of philosophy is what's, I'm trying to build a model where the corporation helps, you know, the student and brings them up to speed. And that process should create a larger candidate pool. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's mutually beneficial. If I could address the argument also, I think you're teaching implicit or tacit knowledge where the professors is more explicit. So the, the tacit is that's, that's indispensable. I mean, it's priceless. So it's just one characterization I have of you and, and how you're teaching your approach. Is, is that, is that fair? Uh, oh, I appreciate it. I would, I would echo it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I had 
incredible professors that I really enjoyed working with and, and learned many things. But I do think there should be some focus on, okay, how do you really get the job? How do, how do you really support yourself? What's your career look like? And how, and then the other thing I'll say is accounting for me, it was tough. I mean, it, it's abstract. Like it, you don't, I don't understand these individual transactions when I can't understand the business as a whole, right? Like why is CapEx important, you know, and they're highly relevant concepts. And one of my favorite testimonials that I have, maybe this is a better direction or a better way to explain this. It was from an accounting major who had been exposed to this. And he said that the first time he saw a three statement model in Excel, it completely overwhelmed him. And that by the conclusion of the 40 minute video, he thought it was the best way he'd ever seen accounting explained. And it was just, he was an incredible accounting student. I, I met this individual um, and saw him on the campus. And so he, he was very bright and understood accounting debits and credits, all of that, but just sort of the macro, the force from the trees, if you will, had been a little bit more difficult for him. So I, I think, I think it does help teach, um, you know, whatever is the more th theoretical approach as well. So let's talk about a simple model. What is it? Where did it come from? You've kind of, you've kind of set the stage sure. here, but talk a little bit about the, this. This is your baby. So what is it? Yeah. It happened sort of accidentally. Um, in 2013, we'd been looking, um, you know, to, to grow the, the, so the way we worked, my, my first private equity job, we were highly opportunistic. In 2010, for example, we did five acquisitions and that slowed as, as multiples started creeping up. And then in 2013, we were sort of sitting on our hands and I went back to this manual that I mentioned that I wrote when I was in investment banking. And I thought it had just been sitting, you know, on this USB drive this whole time. And I thought I'm, I'm going to put it online. And that is, uh, I was accustomed to working long hours. All of a sudden I had a job where we were just looking for transactions and not ever really engaging the due diligence as because <laughs> had we known the way multiples would expand over the years, you know, we probably would have been investing very aggressively, but I never thought that the average EBITDA multiple would be 11 as of last year and, and persisting. So you know, the market changed. And uh, so I, I spent some time in the evenings and uh, went to Best Buy, bought a $25 microphone, recorded this video on a three same model. And I thought the internet would be on fire over it. I just thought, you know, this is going to be amazing and it'll get all this publicity. And, and, and no you, one visited. And you, and you, oh, wait, no, you had a Gary Vee moment, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just sat flat for like, I mean, over 12 months, I mean, you know, it would get a spike in traffic if I emailed my friends, but I just, I knew nothing about SEO, nothing about marketing. Um, one of my favorite things about building ASM has been what private equity takes for granted when they look at opportunities, new businesses. Um, so frequently private equity practitioners come into a business and they say, you have, you know, you have no finance department, you have no marketing, no sales, you know, we have to beef up all these efforts. And until you try and build a marketing effort from scratch or until you try and collect data from scratch, it's wildly different. I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's an extreme exaggeration at all times, but it, I've, I've appreciated that learning curve massively and it has helped me be a better private equity investor. But so going back to what it is, um, so I published that and then really it took me the longest time. I was very bashful about it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't have my name on it, my email address. It was this anonymous thing. And finally, someone reached out and they said, why would I ever spend 30 minutes watching a video in Excel, which is boring to begin with, without knowing who's teaching it and whether or not they know anything. And that makes all the sense in the world. But for me, I just had not put that together. You know, call me dense, whatever. Um, and so I, I wrote, uh, I thought, okay, well, well, how can I get the word out there? And it was Quora. Quora was the first place where I wrote something. And uh, I wrote a post about the first, I think DCF, I think it was the basic DCF model. And I apologized for it. I, sa I said, you know, I, I just got this done. I'm not great at recording video. I'm not great with audio. And this is probably 2014 or something like that. And a friend of mine who's a dear friend of mine immediately reached out and he's, he's like, delete the apology. What are you doing? You're giving something away for free and you're apologizing? And so it took me a lot to get to the point where I could actually market this thing and talk about it, even though I was trying to effectively give it away at the time because I wanted people to have an advantage at getting into this, this kind of, whether it's investment banking or private equity and increasingly private equity, wanted private to provide access to that world. It's, 
I think if I were to condense the way that private equity professionals hire, you look for the number of filters on a person's resume. So did they go to an Ivy League? Do they have a perfect GPA? Were they a division one athlete? You know, did they have a hard major? You sum up all of those filters and you can pick the person that, you know, is most likely to continue working really, really hard. That makes it difficult to provide access to a lot of people to an industry that's highly selective. And I think if, if you can teach them the base skill set that they need day one, that gives you a leg up. And what we'd like to be able to do, you know, with this new recruiting platform is go beyond that and say, you know, regardless of all those other metrics, here's someone who's spending a lot of time on the website, has aced all these quizzes, has aced all, all of these exams. You know, you, you can give them a shot as well. Um, I do want at the time, at the, sorry, I'm jumping way ahead. So at the time, the website's free. I'm bashful. I can't, I can't even tell people about it because I'm so embarrassed about it. I can't even tell you why. I, secretly, I was like so proud of it, right? Uh, I was like, this is going to be the best thing. But I just, there's ego will make you do weird things, which I've learned more and more about. And at the time, I'd much rather be associated with a private equity professional than being a guy who has like a weird blogger nerdy hobby. <laughs> so I didn't talk about it that much, but the site started growing and started growing kind of quickly. And then all of a sudden we had to um, switch to a, a real kind of hosting platform. I had to have a, a tech um, team essentially, and it started getting very expensive. And I started looking at what I was putting into it on a monthly basis. And at first I was like, okay, well, this is like a golf hobby. You know, if I was buying a new golf club, then this is fine. And it kind of <laughs> started going above, above, above. And finally I was like, you know, I need to add a revenue model. I was going to say, that's, uh, that's expensive golfing. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we, we had a development team, uh, awesome, awesome guys that I really enjoy working with and a website developer. And so I thought, okay, $3 is some that wouldn't stop anyone from signing up. And I think if we had X number of people, it would support those two efforts. Wouldn't pay me anything, but at least I could maintain those two efforts. And so we added that website kept scaling and it has. And then it got to the point where we could introduce a new feature about once a quarter from kind of the, the uh, cash flow that the website's been um, developing. And so that's kind of the path we took. Um, and now we have some new initiatives that we're undergoing and we're kind of putting it back into the, the red again. Um, but it's, it's fun. It, like the thing about financial modeling that's really entertaining when you're building a startup is I can think about this where everything I'm doing now is variable. All, all new efforts, I build them on a very variable cost structure. So the idea is if anything were to happen and I didn't want to imperil the business, I can shut down all those efforts, regroup, you know, with my fixed cost basis, build cash, and then, and then revisit what those new features are going to be. And I think that kind of highly iterative process is what allows you to grow. Uh, you're looking for the feature that is, I, I have, I'll, I'll, to go back a step, I have incorrectly um, anticipated the features that would help the website scale. But the process of constantly trying to put them out and getting feedback has been what's allowed the website to scale. And so maintaining that has been a, a big part of the approach, which is why, you know, we launched a feed where people could post their own models and that has been hugely unpopular. People don't like to do that, which I understand because the first time I posted a video explaining how something works in Excel, I was nervous about it all night. I thought maybe someone finds an error and, you know, it, it discredits the site. Fortunately, um, I, I think actually to date, only one actual mechanical error has been found on the website since 2013 by the people using it. But it's still, uh, you know, now that I say that, you know, someone's going to go find all of them. But um, it's just a real fear when you post something. Uh, I think after having every managing director look over your shoulder, every, you know, having a real error in the model that you're presenting a client, if it's, it's a reason people PDF their Excel spreadsheets before they email them because they don't want anyone to be able to see that detail. Two, um, I was going to say two quick plugs. You mentioned Quora and your answer. Your writing is just over the top. And again, I, I I know there's a relationship here, but so I may be biased. I don't care. Your writing is just <laughs> outstanding. And for someone who says he's bashful or shy, don't stop your YouTube videos. And we'll have some of those linked uh, in the I show notes. That. Man, you're don't stop. And I know the views may not be there yet, but tr I'm I'm just trust me, trust me, Peter. You're going to be exploding here. Uh, I may have misunderstood on a simple model that maybe this was originally designed for people 
in private equity, but you've already mentioned accounting students. Your audience is actually broad for a simple model. It's not just for private equity. It's not just for students. I can even see, I can even see CFOs using this, controllers, um, it really any M&A deal, right? It's, it's, been, uh, it's been surprising. I will say that um, I built it with the intention of helping people get into private equity. But my thought was, if you've never been exposed to a balance sheet, how do you do that? How do you get someone ready for private equity? Mm-hmm. And so you have to go back to the accounting fundamentals. And I, I changed um, the structure so that we don't, we don't, re- we, we do introduce the financial statements, but we introduce them in the context of how they relate to each other in a financial model. So you get the same vocabulary, the same concepts, but within the videos that introduce the financial statements, we explain, this is what grows your balance sheet here, here, literally how these line items link to each other, you know, and we explain debits and credits as you go, but you get to see in an Excel file, how these things relate. And so the, the point is to introduce them in a way that once you see the three statement model, you understand the links, you understand why those things are, are actually linked to each other. And I viewed that as the fastest way to get someone up to speed, but it's just been getting um, traction from FPNA departments or other groups that also want, I, I guess they want their employee base to kind of have this base understanding. And um, that, that's been hugely um, positive for me. I, I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the interactions. And increasingly, it started off as just kind of entry-level positions, but increasingly I've had people reach out who have said, you know, I was previously in investment banking, uh, was doing X at McKinsey, had let go of my financial modeling skill set for a while, and I needed a refresher. I needed a way to be able to watch something, get through it, and move on. And so that that customer base has been growing as well. And it's influenced how I think about creating the content. Um, I think I record slightly too fast for someone who's new to it. But my thought is, I'm probably not going to get it on the first pass. I'll probably need to watch it again. Sure. And if I'm a professional, I can't deal with when I watch a video on YouTube and it's, it's too slow, it drives me crazy. And so I wanted to find some balance between those two speeds. And I, I still get lots of commentary on speed and delivery. But I think for the most part, it's starting to reach kind of a pace that, that works for people. And a lot of this is people are watching, pausing, and then working on it in Excel. So you can also move at your own speed regardless of how it's recorded. Um, and we just up, we also just upgraded to a new video hosting platform that's incredible about speed and playback and, and, and all of that. And it actually changes for the bandwidth that the user is is open to. So the website's grown a little bit internationally recently. And uh, from uh, users in Africa, one of the big complaints has been playback time that the the video will stall. And so this hosting platform will change um, the the resolution to match so that the the video plays a little better. Um, so. You have a you have another customer, Peter. We have not talked about. When I start a new client, the first thing I do start working on is a financial model, and it's usually a driver based model. Mm-hmm. And my conviction is, if you can model your business from how do I get a customer, how do I well actually how do I find a customer, how do I get a customer, how do I keep a customer, model that out. That is the best education for this chief executive officer. I always build my model, not for the banks, not for the finance team. I'm doing it for the CEO because they get that eureka moment like, oh my gosh. So I personally, again, your model is so, I love it. It's so, it's simple, but yet complex enough to where any CEO is going to get it. And again, I'm just saying that's another, really. Another- I, I really appreciate it. And I think you're, you're so spot on. Uh, I think um, any business that you're working with, building an operating model for them that helps you communicate what, I mean, you see it in your head. You have the framework in your head already. You're like, these tweaks will change your bottom line in a way that, you know, facilitates growth. These, these, these additional tweaks will give you a balance sheet that exposes you to less risk. And it's really hard to articulate and share that you see it in an instant and having the way to communicate it and show someone like, here are the changes we're talking about. And then look at what it does in your, in the future, assuming the rest of the business remains the same. And I think it's a really cool way at the board level uh, to demonstrate what, you know, the small changes you're talking that I find at the board level, I find a lot of resistance 
to here's the way we've done things for a decade. And if you can communicate that a certain business model took you to where we are today, which is very impressive, and it might require some changes to get you to the next evolution of this business, and you have what you're talking about, that template, that operating model to, to communicate it, it, it facilitates that conversation in, in a wild way. Um, so I, I would absolutely agree. Let's open the hood a little bit more on a simple model. What are some of your favorite features of the tool? And I, you may say, Peter, all of them, but are there some that just really stand out that you're, you're proud of? What, what I'm most excited about is the ability for, for corporations to use it to train employees. Uh, I think it's, you know, in the past, so we, we've tried to keep the website going in um, first player mode as kind of the VC community talks about it. Like it's useful to professors because they can upload their class and they can see the quizzes uh, and exams. It's, upload, it's uh, helpful to individuals because it can help them advance their career. And it's helpful to corporations because they can upload their employees and train them. And if we can create sort of enough uh, of, of a base around those three ideas, then at some point we will be able to help these people interact and communicate. And I think that's what I get most excited about in the future. But right now, making this useful to corporations is something that I find really attractive. The ability to train is terrific. And I've just used it uh, to recruit, actually. So the newest feature we've added is when a corporation uploads uh, a job, we create a page for them with a description of that job. Anyone can apply. If you're a first-time user to ASM, you can apply for free. And it's, it's really neat. They input their email. And instead of having to wait for the password to come in their, in, into their inbox, they just get pushed straight to the application page. And an email goes automatically providing their credentials, but the account's created. And so then they can apply for the job. If the corporation gets too many applicants, then they can send a quiz or a test and say that for people to continue to appear on the dashboard, I need them to score above X. And then on the next iteration, only those you know candidates will appear and then you can contact them directly. So it does, it does two things. It, it helps you filter what I would, you know, interviewing is really difficult when you have transactions going on. You're trying to follow uh, all these candidates, remember your uh, conversations with them. And so the idea is to remove that from your inbox, provide you an ability to filter so that your first conversation is meaningful and then connect with them. And then once you connect, it puts you back in your own inbox, but it just keeps the process out so that you're not, you're not filtering through deal emails. All of this is sort of like <laughs> what I found so frustrating about my job. And it's designed uh, with, with that in mind entirely. The, the two most difficult things for me were I would bring someone on. I needed them to have a certain skill set. We were working on a transaction. I didn't have the time to train them. Then when that person left, I, we had to go find another person. And um, those two things, the, what ends up happening is what you need most, you know, it's this weird paradox that when you need help the most is when you have the least time to go get it or look for it. So trying to solve for that problem is currently my, my kind of favorite feature and what we're trying to kind of get out into the marketplace. Retail, manufacturing, service, uh, software as a service. Those are four distinct industries. Your software, a simple model. It's, doesn't matter. Is that correct? Sorry. Doesn't, you, oh, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think so, so going back to kind of the discussion around modeling, it's cementing those relationships and then whether or not your income statement heavy or balance sheet heavy, that's just the detail you're adding to it. Um, we don't do, or currently there's no like very industry specific um, financial modeling, but, but there's a lot of you know, conversation about if you're focused on this, then these are the, these are the schedules you're going to need to focus on. Um, so, you know, it's, the, so it's hard to say you're really a simple model is really industry agnostic. agnostic. Yeah. Correct. Got yep. it. Entirely. The, the other question I want to have is what's on the horizon for a simple model? Cause even I'm asking, I wonder if he's going to do this or will he, will, will he add this? So I'm, I'm curious what it looks like. What will this look like a year from now, two years from now? So hopefully within the next few months, um, what, what I'm excited about, we started working with Catton uh, and the partners at Catton, it's a law firm. They have 600 plus lawyers across the U.S. And they are the, uh, the partners who are there now are the individuals I've worked with the most on control and non-control transactions for the duration of my career. And we have started working to get together to create the content that shows you how to go out and buy a business, whether you're an independent sponsor or you're a private equity professional, you know, you're part of the investment team at a private equity firm either of those two roles from the time you source, how you source and to the, you know, 
going through due diligence, securing the transaction or letter of intent, going through more advanced due diligence, even negotiating the stock purchase agreement, all of that is going to be detailed by this course. And um, so I think in the future, it will be kind of more, more private equity focused. But a lot of this, I think what gets lost when you're trying to get into the industry is everyone's really focused on the finance and accounting. But when you close a transaction, it's all the legal documents. And you have to understand how those two relate to one another. And I think if you can teach those two in tandem, it sort of creates a new breed of analyst. And what's been really fun about talking to the law firm is they have the same challenge with associate lawyers. There needs to be a better way for private equity professionals and associate lawyers to be able to communicate. And it's so, you know, I would get documents back all the time. And it's just the, the financial modeling component of them, whatever's supposed to be pulled out and in the document, that was always where we struggled to communicate the most. And so I, I think that's, uh, um, seeing the content come together now, it's almost entirely written. We have 20, 25% of the videos done. Um, and we're just at this point, I'm just kind of working through the videos to get it live. So I'm really excited to see what the, uh, what the reaction will be to that. And then I hope it's exciting to entrepreneurs. I like, I hope it's interesting to people who aren't in the industry just from a like, Oh, light bulb moment. I could go out and buy a business too. You know, this is a path to immediate entrepreneurship or the path to partnering with an entrepreneur. If you have a source of capital, um, so that'll, that'll be interesting. Now, this legal component that will be available for everybody or just this uh, law firm you're working with, is this something? No, be- so that what this is, we are, uh, it's, we've branded it a content creation initiative. And they, so the way it works now is um, I write the content and then it goes to partners of the firm and they review it and it comes back, you know, <laughs> painted red sometimes and sometimes with just a few little marks, but what I really enjoy about it is it's constantly being reviewed by people who are working on transactions every single day. Uh, and so the, I, I'm sorry. I can't wait. I'm, I had to, yeah. I can't wait. By the way, I'm a customer. So I, I am, oh, I cannot, thank you. <laughs> I cannot wait to uh, see this. So yeah. I, I'm completely in agreement. Um, another quick question for you in the trenches, in the trenches. So can you, can you think of a model that you've worked on in the past where it did make all the difference in the world. So let's say you're working on an, an acquisition and this model just, it nailed it. I mean, it's a case where the model and the acquisition reality existed. Is there one that comes to mind? You know, there, there's, um, there's, there's two things that come to mind. One, one's a deal we, we didn't close. And um, so we had an opportunity to go work with someone. They had great consolidated data, but you couldn't look at anything. Their, their cost accounting was was really difficult to evaluate. And so I was sitting there with the founder who was this awesome guy, had done exceptionally well, was paying himself an extraordinary sum every year, had no need for anything and frankly, no need for a transaction. And um, I was just asking him what all his data sources were. All his purchase orders ran through an MS-DOS system. And so I asked him, you know, could you get that to me uh, you know, electronically in some way, like, can you pull that off the system? Every year was about 750 pages of purchase orders, but they were itemized all the, all the details. And so I went back for a week and uh, tried to figure out how to work with the data and eventually created some formulas that would extract all of it and create an income statement by, um, by product line and, and, and by customer. And he was making 90% of his profit off of three products. And uh, the rest kind of ran at a loss. So his skew table, his skew tail was pretty immediate. And uh, it was really fun because I got to go back and show him that. And I told him, you know, you could probably cut the rest of this if you wanted to increase your earnings um, and, and you'll do substantially well. You could maintain this. You're already doing substantially well. Did he believe it? Probably- did, did he, he did. He did. He believed it immediately. I, I, to be honest, I think he probably knew it. You know, most of these, like they, they speak about the, the vocabulary changes, but entrepreneurs understanding of their own businesses is wild. You just have to find the language, the vocabulary. I mean, they're, they're really in tune all the time. The, the, the discrepancy is how you discuss what you're discussing. And um, the, the other thing I told him was like, you can go to the, the largest customer and probably sell this to them for more than we're willing to pay. And he was, he was really nice. He actually, he offered me a job, um, which, you know, I, I declined because I also knew he was about to sell and retire, but um, it was just kind of fun to explore that with someone and, and see that. Um, the one model where I don't think we could have closed without it is uh, we looked at an opportunity that was cross-border. Um, they had 
locations in Mexico and, and most of their revenue in the U.S. It was probably six entities, um, some on gap, some on cash. Uh, so, sorry, some on accrual basis, some on a cash basis. And um, also, cost accounting is very difficult. I, I think when you're, when you're starting up, you're an entrepreneur, kind of have a feel for how things work, but you don't, you don't sit there with your chart of accounts going through it over and over and over again. And so this had kind of, um, it actually required us going down to the facility, mapping out the facility, mapping out kind of each of the customers within the facility and creating our own cost structure based on all their inputs. And um, we were kind of recording data in real time. And at, at the time, it was really difficult to get a senior lender on board with something that had operations in Mexico. And I think without the model, without our ability to bring that picture together, uh, I don't know that we would have been able to finance it. And it was really, it turned into a terrific communication tool. And it was one of the few transactions where we went to our investors and told them EBITDA is in the range of X and Y, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, it, it, it was uh, a lot of raw data to mess with. Um, but it, it, it definitely would not have closed without the ability to communicate what was actually happening and going down there and kind of creating the model with management team. And they, again, were entrepreneurs who understood their business forwards and backwards. I'm, I'm not trying to say like we were working with people who didn't. They understood everything. And that information is what allowed us to put it into Excel to create the communication tool. Um, you know, we, we weren't holding someone's hand. We were just kind of saying, here's the industry standard for communication. We can help you with that. And they've been unbelievable partners um, uh, and good friends. So how, continue about, to work with them. how about the other way around? Have you ever worked on a model where it was a false positive? Hopefully I said that right. Have you ever worked on a model where it said, yes, do this, but then you turn it turned out to be the model was re really not good information. Have you ever been in, been in that situation where the model so, said, uh, go, go this direction and it turned out to be not the right direction? I have. Um, what's really interesting to me, this, this is a lesson I learned uh, in a really difficult way, but it is possible to make your financial metrics look really good when the underlying business is on the verge of collapse. And um, that was a tough experience, but all of the KPIs, everything suggested that everything was terrific and uh, everything was improving and performing. Had you called 2% of the customer base, had you, you know, you would have known things were really bad. You know, had you, had you included the human element, you know, done the site visits and all that stuff, um, you would have realized that there were real problems. Um, so I, 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 I don't think you can put too much weight on the financial model. It's a great way to put all the pieces together and to realize whether or not you have all the pieces, your projections going to be wrong. Generally, the way I think about it is we're trying to model how much uh, pain we can tolerate before something really goes wrong, before we're in forbearance, but we're not really trying to model exactly where our outcome is going to be just trying to understand the volatility we can we can endure um and then after that you know you have to be very very personal about due diligence ask millions of questions and get to know people really well i like on iterative um, visits with management teams i really enjoy asking the same questions with with kind of rewording them to different people on the team and just looking for any discrepancies small or big that those are generally kind of the rabbit holes you have to dive into to understand, you know, why do two people at the same company see something slightly differently? And that's where you get the most information without, frankly, kind of being insulting or overbearing or, you know, without being too obvious about what your intentions are. Um, so yeah, the, the human element is absolutely enormous. That leads to my next question, Peter. How do you factor in scenario planning or stress testing with a simple model? So we have um, this new case study that we just posted has a series on, on uh, or has debt covenants. It pulls from term sheets. So it starts to explain, here's where you get in trouble with your lender. And um, what I want to do with this case study, and this will be kind of part of this new series, is show how we really, I'll say how I really ran scenarios. I'll tell you, when we're early in the process, the only template I ever used is when we were very early in the process. I needed an annual model, plug in the details, say like, here's our range, get it through the investment committee. Everyone thinks like, okay, this is good. And then from that point, that's probably the only model I'm going to build with the management projection that shows an increase, you know, um, beyond what we believe is easily achievable. 
After that, we get into a detailed operating model on a monthly basis and we start stressing it down. And then we look historically for declines in revenue and think, you know, what, what's the worst we've seen? Can we tolerate that with our capital structure? Do we have to be that dramatic about this or not? And that's how you get comfort uh, around what you're doing. And most of the, most of the, actually the, the two places I spent the most time working private equity, they had a, they had a, you know, zero tolerance for a, a zero in the portfolio. And so I, I think you can look at portfolios and tolerate zero there. It's just a, a strategy for private equity. If you're looking for outsized gains, you know, you never know what you're closing on. Um, but most of the groups I worked with really focused on how do you de-risk the balance sheet very quickly. And so that's kind of the modeling exercise that I spent most time on. And that is not, um, I think a lot of people think of this as like, it's just you in front of your computer. That is hours of conference calls and talking to the controller, the CFO, the CEO, people on the floor to understand cost structure. Um, it, it's a highly detailed, highly communicated process. And I, I think that's how you come to understand the business best. So yes, it's all going into a financial model, but it's mostly this human element of understanding why all the inputs are driving, you know, your, your kind of thousands and thousands of cells, which in yeah, my, I would say the process helps more than the final product. In my, in my, my thought process or my opinion is that people like Quora, they're thinking, I want to be really good at the Excel piece. And so the part about the human interaction is, yeah, that's critical. And I appreciate you for bringing that up. It's, yeah. and, and it's not just talking to the CEO or the CFO. It's everyone in everyone, all parts, of, all parts of the business. Absolutely. And hey, hey, we need to, start wrapping this up. So I have a few questions that I like to ask everyone that joins us. And I already know what some of your favorite books are. In fact, I just bought a couple this past week uh, that you've mentioned one on your YouTube uh, platform and and then also in Quora on private equity, your favorite books and your list is probably like long, but can you think of a few off the top of your head? What are books that you'd like to either gift Maybe to simplify that, Peter, what books do you like to gift or what are the ones that just stick out that have meant the most to you in your career? You know, um, I'll go with the ones I like to gift the most. So these are things that hopefully your readers will enjoy the most because I think they're the most entertaining reads because I definitely have books that are not entertaining reads. But um, to go off topic, off the topic of finance and accounting, I love Moonwalking with Einstein. Um, This is a, a journalist who attended a memory competition. He's standing in the audience and he's watching people flip through a deck of cards and then recite the cards back in order instantly. And he's just like, wow, these people are geniuses. And someone in the crowd tells him, nope, it's it's just training. And he quits his job and spends a year to become a memory champion. And it exposes you to how do you become an expert? You know, how do you train? How do you learn? You know, what is the science of learning? And all through this like really engaging narrative, because this guy's freaking out about the fact that he just quit his job and he needs to do something cool, you know, to, to come back to the professional workforce afterwards. And so his story of how he, uh, I won't give it away, but he, he, you know, works to become a memory champion is really fascinating. And the other one, um, that I really like, I actually to, to get as a gift, super forecasting is awesome. Uh, by Tetlock. It is so good. That is, that is, Oh, that is a great book. It's, it's, it's so been, great. And, and to our point on kind of this like human element and how do you find people who can really understand other people, put them under, you know, put themselves in someone else's shoes, gain their perspective and how terrible humans are in general at forecasting and why we shouldn't get too comfortable with our financial models. It, it's terrific. I, I really love that one as well. You have a third one. Third book. Um, right now I'm reading, um, uh, so Schiller, I, I find Schiller's amazing. Yeah, Irrational Exuberance is one of my favorite books, but it's it's tedious. Uh, I will say it's it's not like a light, fun read to get through. And he just wrote one on um, narratives, uh, how uh, financial narratives explode. I'm, this is embarrassing, but I'm blanking on the title of the book. It's, um, uh, oh, Narrative Economics. And it's a little bit more anecdote-driven, um, still, you know, detailed, uh, He's a very detailed individual, but so far I've found it pretty fascinating. Weeks ago, actually it's been months, we interviewed Liz Wiseman, who is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Multipliers. And so 
when we talk to people like this, it's like, I want to ask these people questions they never heard before. So I just thought, okay, well, TEDx talk, that sounds interesting. And she said, Mark, I love that question. So it sticks. So Peter, what's your TEDx talk at a nearby college or university? Now you've had time to think about this. I'm, I'm anxious yeah. to. So I'm, I'm split. I'm split on this. Okay. Um, do, okay. There could be two. Okay. Um, one is, uh, really around trying to create a model for education where you can shift the burden to the corporation. I, I think, you know, if you can teach things that are valuable again, not to, not to be redundant, but skill sets valuable day one, then there's real, uh, there's a real reason the corporation should be willing to pay for that education and to filter through candidates who are working towards a goal there. And so I, I think the cost of education is wild, outrageous, something that, um, I, you know, just graduating with that much debt is, is tough. So I find that uh, to be a very interesting topic. And the other uh, we've talked about a little bit, but it's sort of uh, the positive side of private equity, the value of private equity, what it can do for a community when people have a long-term, you know, time horizon, evergreen capital, we're trying to build real long-term value, what it does for the employee, you know, everyone from the employee to the shareholder. Um, you know, it's, it, I think it, it frustrates me a little bit to see, capitalism attacked, you know, any, any model can, can be twisted. Uh, it's really just humans. I, I uh, wrote an article the other day about why uh, financial modeling won't be automated. And it's because so long as these are metrics that are attached to how people get compensated, people will find a way to good to point. It. That's a great and, point, you know? And so, yes, like private equity is a terrific way to make money and there will be people who take advantage of that, but it is not evil by nature. And so I, I think that would be the other thing that I'd really love to share more broadly. We'll have this in the show notes, but Peter, where can we learn more about you and a simple model? Uh, hopefully with this new series coming live, the kind of, I think at the moment we're going to be calling it private equity training. Um, we, we haven't, I, I keep saying we, you know, at the moment ASM is now supported by kind of the tech team uh, designer and a bunch of freelance help. But at the moment, I'm still kind of the only employee. So, <laughs> but um, I, I, I'm really excited about this new series. I'm really excited to be working with Catton um, and being able to provide something that's kind of created by industry professionals. And um, yeah, ho- hopefully that will be a great learning resource in the future. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now, Back to your hosts, the no-name CFOs, Mark and Bruce. Bruce, important question. I mean, you've been. I mean, you you are a longtime financial leader. As as a, let's say a CFO who's been a CFO for 10, 15 years, do they really need to be a strong financial modeler at this point in their careers? Yes. Uh, I think you, you have to be a strong financial modeler. Now, that form can take a variety of, um, well, that, that can take a variety of forms in it. You're not necessarily the one sitting, doing, uh, you know, punching the keys and, and putting the model together physically, but you've always got to be thinking about the financial model behind a decision or a, a challenge that you're faced with. And it can be it can be a mental process. It can be uh, in in a system process, but that modeling always has to be taking place. I definitely want you to be checking out a simplemodel.com in the show notes. We'll have links, but I want you to take a look at it. You may even Bruce, your staff, you may even want them to uh, sign up. By the way, the the cost is extremely low. I don't want to use the word cheap. Because that that suggests that well, this may be cheap training, um, as in quality, low quality. No, this is high quality stuff. This guy, mm-hmm. he's nailed it, and I love his private equity background brings a lot to the table. And I love the way he teaches. He he doesn't talk down to you. So I would I would just say for anyone listening who who has a staff that does modeling F P and A. Go check out Peter's site and and then subscribe. And if you have a large team of 20, 30, 40 or more, 
reach out to him and, you know, just to him and just say, Hey, can you give us some type of special pricing? Uh, and, you know, with, with, you know, having a bulk number of users and I'm sure he would say, yeah, sorry, Peter, I'm trying, <laughs> trying to do your business for you. But so anyway, definitely check out his website. I will do that. I will do that. I'm a, I was, uh, looking at it now and it's, uh, I'm intrigued. I'll definitely be digging deeper. Very well done. Yeah. Really clean, really clean. All right. So that another great one, Mark, always, uh, always appreciate our time together. Everybody out there, stay safe, stay well, practice love and empathy, and we'll talk to you again soon.